it's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome Sandy, thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician, I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Cindy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Good Sunday morning. Happy Halloween. We have a brand new NBC News poll out this morning. It's filled with some scary news for the Democrats. The overarching message, Americans have lost their confidence in President Biden and their optimism for the country. At least they have right now. Just 22% of adults say we're headed in the right direction. A shocking 71% say we're on the wrong track. And that includes a near majority of Democrats who are saying that. President Biden's approval rating stands at a dismal 42% versus 54% who disapprove. Believe it or not, just two months ago, Mr. Biden was in positive territory. 49% approving, 48% disapproving. So what's pulling down the president's numbers? Well, look at this set of numbers. Just 37% say he has the ability right now to handle a crisis versus nearly a majority who say he does not. 37% also say he's competent and effective as president. 50% disagree with that description. What's more, Republicans, believe it or not, have double-digit leads in dealing with border security, inflation, crime, national security, the economy, and shockingly, on getting things done. Democrats hold generally smaller double-digit leads on dealing with climate change, the coronavirus, education, and abortion. And that's really it right now. It's not clear yet whether any deal struck by Democrats on the social spending and infrastructure bills will nudge Mr. Biden's numbers back into positive territory or whether the damage to his reputation is more of a scar than a bruise. But this much is clear about the only good news for Mr. Biden and the Democrats in this poll is that the midterm elections aren't for another year. All right. That was an amazing story told by Chuck Todd yesterday on NBC Meet the Press. Uh, NBC Meet the Press would be more inclined to cover if there were anything to cover. Uh, but if those polls are what NBC say they are, they they are likely much worse. In Virginia, we are seeing that uh, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate for governor, has pulled ahead by eight points. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for governor. We've been covering this race. And I want to talk about this because the election is tomorrow uh, and we want to get some perspective on this. I want to caution, before we even get into our conversation with uh, with uh, Kim Cuccinelli, I want to caution you not to be cavalier about what uh, Chuck Todd just reported. I have no faith, personally, that those numbers and the encouraging polls that people are waking up to common sense and the lawlessness that has ensued, I have no confidence that that's going to translate to the polls. But um, I think Ken does. And so we're going to talk to him. Ken Cuccinelli is the former attorney general of the state of Virginia. He is a Virginian through and through. He's the former acting director of Customs and Border Patrol under the Trump administration. And he currently serves as the chairman of the election. Oh, I wrote it down, Ken, and now I can't find it. What? Tell me, help me. The chairman of what commission? (laughs) Election. Can I buy a vowel? The Election Transparency Initiative. Thank you. I need which, I need all which, those. Not surprisingly, we work on clear, clean, secure elections. Yes, which is what we are praying for tomorrow. All right, well, let's talk. You know, we do a lot of talking. We don't, You and I only have 15 minutes, and so this is a challenge. Uh, but uh, what do you think the greatest threats to having uh, uh, the kind of outcome you want to see tomorrow are that, that are going to be happening tomorrow? Well, right now, um, look, Sandy, as you know, I've won statewide in Virginia and I've lost statewide in Virginia. And um, those situations feel very different one from the other. And this really feels like winning. Uh, And it has for several weeks now. Um, You've watched perhaps the best sign of that is how desperate the Democrats have been. I mean, Terry McAuliffe is flailing about and... um, I've joked with Glenn Youngkin because I ran against Terry and lost by two points eight years ago. I've joked with Glenn Youngkin that I wish he'd been so honest when he was running against me, telling people that he doesn't think parents have a role in education and 
his comments on crime over the years and so forth. But he is a record that just isn't defensible. Glenn Youngkin is holding him up to that record and offering alternatives on things that Terry demonstrably failed at leading in in Virginia. So my greatest concern is simply that, for whatever reason, uh, people get overconfident. And uh, in a state like Virginia, where we've gotten, we've been very close, my two-point race, when I ran the attorney general candidate, Mark Obenshain, lost by literally only a few hundred votes. And the next year, the Republican candidate came within a few thousand votes of beating incumbent U.S. Senator Mark Warner. So we've been very close in the last 10 years, but haven't won a statewide race. So what I don't want people to do is get uh, you know, be so confident they don't need to show up because traditionally this is a well below 50 percent voter turnout race. We need everybody to show up. We have had 45 days of early voting because the Democrats rewrote the election laws two years ago very substantially. When the Republican ticket wins tomorrow, uh, they're going to do it with a Democrat set of rules. And there's a big lesson in that for everybody that everyone listening can learn from. And that quite simply is um, to swarm the polls. And every, everyone listening lives in somewhere where your local election officer hires citizens to help run the election, to count the votes, to run the poll books, to do all those things. And re Republicans and Virginians concerned about election security after 2020, rose up, organized themselves, trained thousands of Virginians, Sandy, thousands to go be election officers, not work for the campaign, not go hand out flyers, literally go run the election. And that's the most secure you can be is when your own folks are running the election. We don't need an advantage, right? We just yeah. need it to stay fair, clean, and transparent. And so that's why I think we're going to win tomorrow. I think uh, the enthusiasm's there for all three Republican candidates. Um, and I, I do think Virginians, ordinary Virginians, this is not a party thing. Ordinary Virginians have risen up to secure these elections pretty darn effectively. You know, Ken, before we... Before I push back a little bit on the other things I'm hearing about the dangers tomorrow. Sandy, it's so funny. I'm used to being the pessimist. You're the pessimist <laughs> I know. now. I'm the pessimist. I'm the pessimist. But that uh, makes good radio. Okay. No, I'm not doing it because of that. I just, you know what? Burned, burned, burned. We've been so burned that I have not forgotten oh, the singe that I still feel. So, hey, um, there are two other, as you said, two other candidates. One is a black Former Marine, she's running for, am I right? I'm just doing this off Winsome the top of my Sears. head. Yeah, Winsome okay. Sears. She's the most conservative candidate running, and she's also been in the House of Delegates in Virginia. So uh, that was many years ago, but um, also Marine. She's a, uh, she's a very solid character, um, and she's running against, frankly, the worst candidate of the six, who is the Democrat for lieutenant governor. I mean, she's an out-and-out -out communist, and... Uh, so it's uh, it's the, there's real hope there to not just bring in a, a, an ideological conservative, but African American woman who knows the Virginia legislature, so um, and has a record of service of her own. So she's she's superstar. And then Jason Miares for Attorney General um, is really really hammering the incumbent Mark Herring. I jokingly call him Red Herring. But um, it's a good name, uh, actually. Oh, it fits in so many ways. He did, did horrible but, um, things right away but, when he was elected, I have to say. Oh, he, but he really he's did. still there. He really did. And he's still there. Incumbency is tough. So in some ways, Jason has the toughest race because he has to knock out a two-term incumbent running for his third term. So, yeah. but, but again, Herring has a record now. People are paying attention. And let's not kid ourselves. The fact that this is the first year of the Biden administration, which uh, I got a similar benefit in 2009 running for attorney general. I got 58% of the vote in Virginia, and I didn't get 58% of the vote because I'm so wonderful. I ran a good campaign, solid record, but I got 58% of the vote because Barack Obama scared the bejeebers out of people after his first nine months in office. 
And um, so that was largely ideological. You've got that here with Joe Biden, but you also, Sandy, have a level of incompetence that is astonishing. And remember, folks, I'm talking to you from Virginia. We're right on the other side of the Potomac from the nation's capital. A lot of the people in my northern Virginia community cross that Potomac to go run the government every day. They not only they see this incompetence up close and personal. You know, Afghanistan is the most glaring example, but but some of their appointments, like the Rachel Levine business and so forth, where you put someone in there because they're transgender. That's why that guy was appointed, even though he effectively killed people with his work in nursing homes during COVID, just like Andrew Cuomo. So the combination of the ideological craziness and utter incompetence has created an environment where, I mean, you rattled off Chuck Todd's numbers. I mean, that was part of what's so interesting from yours and my perspective, because it was Chuck Todd exactly. <laughs> pointing all that out. Exactly. You know, that isn't that wasn't Rush Limbaugh doing that. That was Chuck no. Todd. No, so I, that was amazing. You know, uh, it also occurs to me as I as we're talking, I, I just think you know um, we've we okay racism, racism, racism. The, the left has used that against. A good uh, patriotic Americans for a long time. There is racism. I'm not saying there isn't. My I don't have to explain that to my audience. Of course, there uh, but, is, right. Uh, but but I think and I'm wondering if critical race theory has not shaken the very core of that argument. So the black, you know, we know that black parents are so upset about critical race theory, also. And I'm thinking that black voters, Virginia, may be sort of the bellwether state on whether we have finally crossed the Rubicon, uh, so that racism cannot be thrown at every person just because they're not black. Uh, and I, this is an interesting so, race tomorrow. So, Andy, you know, I, I, this is a really important uh, campaign for that issue. Let's not forget Loudoun County, Virginia, has become in the last six months the epicenter in America, epitomizing this problem and the transgenderism and the parental role in education. It's amazing how many intellectual threads are running through and being fought over in Loudoun County right now. And um, Loudoun is a, is a big county. It's not the biggest county in Virginia, but it's half a million people almost. That's, that's a lot of people. And, um, you know, we've seen the father who was up there to just uh, protest how the school board didn't handle his daughter being sexually assaulted. And that assaulter has now been convicted of that sexual assault. It's not an alleged sexual assault anymore. It's an, it's a conviction for a sexual assault by a transgender student doing exactly what one of the dangers that we've all talked about forever is just going in the girl's bathroom and sexually assaulting this girl. So he gets arrested really seriously. And, yeah. um, and Glenn has, Glenn Youngkin has not seized on this. I want to say this correctly. He has recognized how important all of that, debate is. And he has made it very clear that he comes firmly down on the side of parents protecting their children and controlling their education. We know, and I know all your listeners know, parents are responsible for children's education, whether it's homeschooled or public schooled or private schooled. Parents are responsible for that. And for Terry McAuliffe to step out in a debate and say parents have no business telling a school board what to teach their children, exposed. This is why I joke with Glenn, I wish Terry had been so honest when I ran against Yeah, exactly. It exposed what he really believes, and that is on the ballot tomorrow. We have so many things to talk about, and there's music, and I have, today is such a busy news day that I can't talk to you longer, but I did want to say uh, that we know that uh, Terry McAuliffe has hired uh, Mark Elias, who was the one in oh, charge yeah. of the 2020 election, that is terrible news. Uh, we know that they're already uh, hoping to use absentee ballots and that the ballots, those ballots won't be counted, I think, till three days after the election. Those are the dangers. Right. Those are two of the dangers that I see in this. So people need to come out, as Ken has said, saturate the voting polls, watch what's going on around you, uh, because the only way to win is to overwhelm uh, the opposition on this. And so, Ken Cuccinelli, thank you. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Sandy Rios. It all came down to 
the ultrasound and I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was gonna be okay. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in the country as they equip centers to save more babies and souls. To find out more, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. I choice to become a mom and hear those little footsteps running down the hallway every morning is all because I had an ultrasound. It saved my life and hers. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Dr. Stephen Cliff, Deputy Administrator of NHTSA. He oversees the agency that sets vehicle safety standards, identifies safety defects, and manages recalls, and educates Americans to help them drive, ride, and walk safely. Proverbs 2, 8 through 9 reminds us of God's guidance in our travels. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. Right now with this in mind, let's pray together. Dear God, protect Dr. Stephen Cliff as he works to create safe travel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. This fall, Liberty University is celebrating 50 years of training champions for Christ. Since 1971, Liberty has been training Christ-centered men and women with the values, knowledge, and skills essential for impacting the world, a vision that continues today. The story of Liberty University is one of unwavering faith, and we invite you to be part of the next chapter. With more than 700 programs online and on campus, Liberty can help you turn your vision into a future you can be proud of. Visit liberty.edu to learn more. Again, that's liberty.edu. Jesse Hamilton prepared meals for the men of Phi Gamma Delta for about 14 years. Her presence at Louisiana State University was life-changing for many of the fraternity brothers. She eventually went on to other jobs in life, cleaning and cooking, still hard at work, even at the age of 74. Andrew Fusiati was one of the young men who ate her cooking back in the day. And when he found out Mrs. Hamilton was still on the job, he just knew an intervention was in order. So he contacted a few of his fraternity brothers, and they decided to to pay off Mrs. Hamilton's mortgage. And on her 74th birthday, they surprised her with a catered meal and a great big check, totaling more than $50,000. All those attending were given t-shirts proclaiming Jesse Hamilton Day and hankies as well to wipe away the tears. It was an emotional scene, those grown men taking care of a sweet lady who made sure they had a home-cooked meal. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. We're talking about elections today. Uh, this is important. Virginia has their election tomorrow. Texas has theirs next week, and we will be discussing that this week as well. Uh, but, of course, we're all we're all thinking about this, aren't we? I mean, uh, there... I don't think anyone's really planning an insurrection, and certainly the people on January 6th, according to investigators even, we're not planning an insurrection. They're trying to do things lawfully, and we have to do what we need to do to change what's happening in Washington through the ballot box. That's our last remaining hope, and that's why we're all keen on what's going on around the country. Let me just say, I'll give you an overview for a second. According to J. Uh, J. Christian Adams, our good friend, uh, the latest government report showed that 15 million mail ballots in 2020 are still unaccounted for. 15 million. Up in Wisconsin, uh, Congressman Tim Rath Ramthan is calling for a decertification of Wisconsin's 10 electoral ballots. This is what he says. I have continued to pursue truth and integrity of our 2020 general election. Recent developments have made it abundantly clear that the legislature should not have certified Wisconsin's 10 electoral ballots on December 14th. 
And then he goes on to say, after review of today's press release from Racine County Sheriff Department, it was confirmed the Wisconsin Election Commission knowingly and willfully directed all 72 county clerks to violate state statutes regarding absentee voting in certain residential care facilities and retirement homes. This unlawful direction clearly broke state statutes. Uh, uh, And when combined with the Legislative Audit Bureau report, these actions verify that our election process was fraudulent. I therefore call upon the Wisconsin legislature to recognize its duty, uh, as well as the guidance provided by, and he gives different names of of the uh, legislation, to decertify Wisconsin's November 2020 election results by reclaiming its 10 electoral ballots. And by the way, that's a a Congress, that's a a representative, Tim Raththun, but also the state Senate in Wisconsin is launching its own 2020 election investigation. Can you believe it? I thought this was a big lie. And then we're hearing out in Arizona uh, reportedly that they found a potentially thousands of duplicated ballots without serial numbers. I just picked out three stories. There are stories happening all over the country of uh, more discoveries about what happened in 2020. And so I've asked Patrick Colbeck to join me this morning. Pat has become really a national expert on this. He was a state senator in Michigan, and certainly there was a lot of sh- were a lot of shenanigans in Michigan and have been uh, for the last several years. There is weak Republican leadership, uh, and um, people in Michigan have paid the price for having not paid attention to who they elected. But Pat has been a stalwart fighter. He's founded his own uh, his own outlet called um, Let's 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 Fix Stuff dot com, and with that. He's been working with Mike Lindell and all the other election uh, uh, specialists, people who've been devoting their lives to this for the last year. And so I've asked Pat to join me this morning because he's just in the process producing a video to kind of create a synopsis of just what happened in 2020. And he joins us this morning. Pat, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I I think you've provided a pretty good synopsis of of what is happening right now, and uh, it's pretty compelling. You mentioned Wisconsin's calling for a decertification. Arizona, we have Senator Wendy Rogers calling for a decertification there. In Nevada, we've got 19 straight vote tally reports that were submitted that had the same exact percentage vote for uh, um, Joe, uh, for Donald Trump at 47.5%. Um, as my good friend Dr. Frank likes to say, that ain't natural. <laughs> and so in Michigan, we're seeing quite a few shenanigans going on as well. And uh, we've got um, an example of the same activity that uh, the Racine County Sheriff's Office noted in Wisconsin regarding uh, people voting on behalf of residents at a nursing home, uh, which is against Wisconsin law. We're seeing the same things happening here in Michigan. And so the tough part, what we've been missing for a long time, here I am, what, talking about this now a year after the fact, we've had all these different factoids, all these different bits and pieces of evidence, but nobody's kind of put a bow tie onto it. And as my good friend, Senator uh, John Papa George once said, Colbeck, you got to put it into a bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, that's what this documentary is an attempt to do, is put all this election fraud into a bumper sticker. We want to make it free free for everybody so that they can get an understanding of what's happening it's called Was America Hijacked? And I'm truly trying to tackle the topic of election fraud from a skeptic's perspective, because that's where I started out. But a year later, um, I, we've got the evidence to package this and to make a very compelling case that indeed America was hijacked. So, Pat, let me put this in context in a different way. Um, okay, this is going to be longer than it probably should be, but I was just talking to a doctor <laughs> no this week. I know the feeling with me. Okay. Yeah, no I was like, how do I condense this? I was just talking to a doctor earlier this week, and uh, we were talking about COVID because he's he has a very clear understanding of what's going on here. And he said to me, yeah. this is the first time in my decades of med- medical career that patients know more than their doctors about this yeah. issue. And I thought about that, and then I thought, you know what? It's the same way with the election. And this yeah. is probably the first time ever when American citizens know more about the election fraud that happened in 2020 than their elected officials. And so our elected officials, for the most part, uh, the ones that actually have the control, that are the leaders, they want to get beyond this. Come on, let's, let's, we have to move on. We can't talk about that, that stuff. That's old. We just, that's talking about the past. We have to move on. Why? Okay, so I'll ask you the obvious question. Pat, why can we not move on? 
Why can't we not move on? Too much is at stake. If if we cease to follow our laws, we cease to be our constitutional republic known as the United States of America. It's as simple as that. I mean, if you can do away with our laws, do away with our constitution, do away with our civil rights without having to fire a shot by stealing our election, that's pretty critical. Very critical. And, uh, and, And we're all facing this in every single state. And you can now, I think people can now see really, Pat, what's at stake. There was a time in my life, and probably yours too, when elections just kind of swung each year. Every four years, you'd get something different. and But basically, your life didn't change that much. Well, that's yep. not the case anymore because we are dealing with a people who actually hate this country, want to undermine and destroy it, versus a group of people. Some are, lots of them are Republicans, but you know what? Some of them are Democrats, and a lot of them are independents who still love the country, actually want to raise their children in freedom. And so they're beginning to understand that elections truly, truly do have consequences. And that's why we have to fix what happened in 2020. So, with that in mind, I know this is hard, and I know that you're a great communicator, so I'm going to ask you, this can get bogged, we can get bogged down with it. Can you give us an entertaining version of, uh, you know? know. (laughs) Sandy, you know I'm an engineer, right? So I don't know how entertaining it's going to be here. Yeah, but you are an unusual engineer because you actually are colorful in the way you communicate. So, uh, but tell us, give us an idea of the things that you have found, the categories, however you want to present it. Sure. I I've tried to distill all the election fraud that happened in the election into four basic phases of operation. Um, first phase is preparation. Second phase, I call it the main attack, and we'll get into that in just a sec. Third phase is a backup attack because the main attack didn't work, um, at least not the way that they wanted it to. And then the last phase uh, is the defense phase. We're currently in the defense phase. This is where um, I get uh platform from YouTube because I'm talking about election fraud. This is where I get taken off of PayPal because of mention of election fraud. Um, this is where the President of the United States gets censored. This is where they push um, propaganda and call it the news. Um, we're in that defense phase. I mean, it's lawfare where you get cease and desist letters, which I've received from Dominion, for example, not to talk about election fraud. Um, obviously, I didn't do too well on response. But anyway, the idea is we're in, they are desperate right now to keep the ground that they took in the preceding three phases. Now, I want to go through those three phases because I think it's pretty important to highlight what happened in each one of them. First of all, in that preparation phase, what they did is seek to create and exploit weaknesses in our electronic, uh, in our, in our election system. And how do you do that? You do things like um, stuff the uh, voter registration file with ineligible voters. You uh, put together ballot initiatives that actually help impair election security. Like in Michigan in 2018, they passed measures for no reason absentee voting and also for um, the uh, um, the same-day voter registration. Um, Other things that they did during that preparation phase are to centralize the uh, management of elections by the implementation of electronic voting systems that were able to network together. So one of the biggest pushbacks I get from election officials is that it would take too many people to steal an election on the scale that you're talking about, Colbeck. And I sit there and go, well, you know, when you connect these all the all of our election records together, uh, the electronic voting systems that are capable of connecting to the Internet, what you've done is essentially allowed one person with an IV drip of Red Bull sitting in a basement in Beijing, China, to control the outcome of our election. Now, I'm not proposing that's what happened here. But the point is, you can, if you centralize uh, operations of an election like they did leading up to the 2020 election, you drastically reduce the number of people needed to subvert an election. And here's where we get into how they subverted it, that main attack phase. The key thing that they did around exploiting weaknesses was to exploit weaknesses in our mail-in voting process or absentee voting process. Um, and in that main attack phase, it was just good old-fashioned Chicago-style ballot stuffing, except the focus on that ballot stuffing in that attack was done um, in mail-in ballots. And they leveraged drop boxes that they had prepared in that preparation phase, and uh, um, essentially they leveraged access to, the, to all these fake or low-propensity voters sitting in the qualified voter files for these states 
to go off and serve as a pool of people to match to a bunch of fraudulent ballots, essentially uh, enabling what Dr. Frank found with his machine-based algorithm that indicated that the matching of voters to ballots across all states uh, occurred in accordance with the same base, uh, the same formula for every single uh, county within a given state. And so that main attack phase was designed never to be uh, discovered because once you've matched a voter with a ballot, you've dumped it into that ballot box, um, it gets counted with everything else. Because one of the other things they did in the preparation phase in Michigan was we had our Secretary of State say, hey, you know, that signature verification on the ballot envelopes, don't worry about it this election. Just assume that it's a valid signature. When you do that, you essentially get rid of any security firewall that we had in our system, and you allow that little eHarmony.com uh, scenario that uh, Dr. Frank talked about where you match voters to ballots with a machine-based algorithm. You enable all those ballots that got submitted that way to go into the system without detection and uh, of any fraud, and those ballots are counted like any other ballot. So anybody who says, well, you could discover what happened there with a recount, well, how do you know? Which of the ballots that are you're going to go off and recount are uh, are cast by fraudulent voters or real voters? You don't. We have a secret ballot in America. So by design, that main attack phase was designed never to be discovered in any way, shape, or form. The problem with that was that main attack phase, you have to predict accurately the voter turnout because you got to figure out how many ballots you want to stuff the ballot box with. Well, they were off on this because people came out in droves in the 2020 election and it broke their algorithm. And so they had to revert to their backup plan. And believe me, they did not want to leave anything to chance after 2016. They needed a backup plan. And we saw evidence of a backup plan being implemented in the wee hours of the morning on November 4th, where um, as soon as Florida got called, we saw some very strange things happen in the election night reporting results. And this was brought to my attention by Draza Smith, who I met at the cyber symposium from uh, Mike Lindell. And what Draza was noticing was that all these election night reports featured this little blip in the middle of the cumulative vote tally reports, where all of a sudden the cumulative vote went down to zero and then popped back up again to resume its uh, course. And that's very weird. How do you do a cumulative vote tally and then all of a sudden, that tally goes down to zero in the middle of the night. Well, she noted that that is a characteristic of a digital controller known as a PID controller. Now, I don't want to get too geeky for everybody. I get it. <laughs> Suffice it to say that the thermostat on your home has a little digital controller on it. The speed control, the cruise control in your car, that's a digital controller. You put in a specific set point like temperature or speed. Um, and in the case of elections, you put in uh, a percentage vote for a specific candidate. And it turned out that what we've seen is evidence of these PID controllers across all the battleground states being implemented. Um, and so the next question that I followed up on, I said, okay, Draza, this is a little bit uh, tough to swallow here. But let's go off and do a little bit of digging and see if I can find any examples of people uh, implementing these PID controllers for elections uh, to control election outcomes. And sure enough, in 2010, uh, there was a paper presented at, by a, at an IEEE conference. That's a professional society for electrical engineers. It was presented uh, by three Chinese professors from Guangdong University. And uh, they had a paper on how to control the outcomes of elections using PID controllers. Guess where they presented this in 2010? I can't imagine. Uh, you ever hear of a town called Wuhan, China? Oh, oh, no, oh my goodness. I, I, you can't write this stuff and make this stuff up. And, and so the bottom line is the second phase of this operation that got them over the hump um, was use of digital controllers to modify vote tallies directly. And then you have to go back and update the ballots and the, and the poll books. It's a Pat, pretty streamlined operation. Uh, I am so sorry, but um, we have no more time. Uh, you and I have to talk again, but let me just say, they, they can see this on your video. Your video has been taken off of YouTube, and now it's on yeah. uh, Rumble. But you, the yeah. link is letsfixstuff.org slash 2021 slash 10 slash how the 2020 election was stolen. We'll put that uh, on our Facebook page, which they will probably take down 
How are we going to do this? Go to letsfixstuff.org. You can find it, right? If they go to letsfixstuff.org? Absolutely. Okay. When you hear this... This is American Family News. You know what follows is the truth. Your news from a Christian perspective. Hundreds of teachers are going to have to walk into that school building and they are forced to swallow political ideology that in many cases violates their very faith and conscience. If you miss it at the top of the hour, American Family News podcasts are available at AFN.net and sign up for our daily news brief at AFN.net. Are you really worshiping God? Here's Pastor Jeff Shreve with From His Heart Ministries. So you can come to church and you can dress up nice and you can sing all the songs and you can stand up and you can clap and you can say praise the Lord. And people around you can say, oh, look how they love God next to me. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Learn how to fall in love with God and find real worship. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve on From His Heart, weeknights at 6 Central here on American Family Radio. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. When their mom passed, the Landau brothers of New Jersey had a garage sale to clear out their mom's house. But they decided to keep a few things, including mom's old creepy painting of a woman passed out in a chair and two men trying to revive her. Fast forward to their estate auction, and the brothers found themselves fielding bids from France and Germany for the painting. Turns out it was a long-lost Rembrandt that ultimately sold for $1.1 million. A trained eye spots value where others don't. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. The church is growing big time in Latin America, and here's why. Hey, it's Michael Woolworth with Bible League International. If you follow groups like Barna who measure church growth in America, they'll tell you it's somewhat stunted. In fact, it may have even dipped here in America. But it prompts you to look at where is it growing around the world. It's in places like Latin America because people are willing to suffer for the gospel. Let me tell you about a church outside of Caracas, Venezuela. They are rescuing women who are kidnapped and forced into prostitution by the drug cartel. They're serious about this. In fact, one of the members was killed by the cartel. His corpse pulled behind a truck to make an example to other Christians to stay out of the way to the cartel. But I can tell you this church is focused on what they believe God has called them to. And they have led more than 100 women, former prostitutes, to faith in Christ. And these women are needing Bibles because they're non-existent in that part of Venezuela. Please, at $5 a Bible, make your most generous gift by calling 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. Or give at sendbiblesnow.org. That's sendbiblesnow.org. This is Frank Effney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Millions of Americans will soon be gathering in football stadiums, NASCAR races, and other venues across the country to cheer on their favorites. If recent experience is any guide, many of them may also express their profound displeasure with President Joe Biden shouting an obscene phrase an NBC reporter hilariously transformed into, let's go, Brandon. While they're at it, these crowds might add a new chant to their repertoire. Attorney General Merrick Garland deserves critical attention, too, for insisting that school board meeting attending mothers and fathers are, quote, potential domestic terrorists, unquote, and for sicking on them FBI investigators and Justice Department prosecutors. So if you're heading to a public event this weekend, consider starting or joining a denunciation of America's top law enforcement officer who is weaponizing our security agencies against us. How about urging President Biden to let go Garland? This is Frank Gaffney. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. The Supreme Court on Monday will embark on the first chapter of a legal saga over abortion that could see the nationwide ride to the procedure sharply curtailed in the coming months. Yeah, the justices will hear arguments over a Texas law known as SB 8. It is the most restrictive regulation in the U.S., banning the procedure at about six weeks. It remains in effect until the Supreme Court rules, but the key issue is the state's enforcement mechanism. The court, for now, is not likely to address its constitutionality. 
The Texas law is unique. Instead of having state officials enforce it, Texas puts that power in the hands of private citizens, allowing anyone to sue abortion providers and seek personal and financial damages. That's what the justices will debate on Monday. And we expect a high court ruling within days. And what the justices do here will set the stage for an even bigger fight over abortion. A challenge to Mississippi's 15-week ban, that case will be argued in just about a month, and the very future of Roe v. Wade could be at stake. All right, that's Fox Report, and that kind of gives you an idea of what's going to be discussed today in the Supreme Court. But this is a busy week for the court. They have all kinds of cases, and we want to at least touch on a few of them, and certainly on the abortion case. And no one knows more about this than Carrie Severino. She's the president of Judicial Action Network. She's, the, by the way, the author of Justice on uh, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation. She co-authored that with Molly Hemingway. Uh, and uh, Carrie joins us this morning. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Sandy. Good to be here. You know, I know that the pro-abortion forces uh, are, you know, uh, convinced, at least they want you to think they're convinced, that this court, with its current configuration of so many Roman Catholic justices and allegedly pro-life justices, they are pretending as though they're worried sick that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. Are you confident that might happen between these two cases? Well, I, I, again, as you, if the, your intro pointed out, today's case is really about for some procedural things surrounding this Texas law. This, the case that's being argued today is not going to address Roe versus Wade squarely. But the Dobbs case being argued next month will, exactly a month from today, in fact, December 1st. <clears throat> and I think today's case, case will also be a little bit of a, a way to take the court's temperature on how intimidated they're feeling by the outside pressure campaign, because as you said, people are people are going crazy on the left about this. I think most Americans actually would welcome what a uh, what eliminating the Roe and Casey framework would um, entail, which would really just kick it back to the state, and that actually would allow most people to have something closer to what they agree with in an abortion regime, because most Americans aren't where the Supreme Court law is right now, which allows abortion all nine months. Um, they would probably like to see somewhere in the middle. That's not a judgment call that judges are really cut out to make. That's for legislators, and I think um, that's that's what I would like to see is it go back to the American people, and then those can be the people that decide, okay, how exactly in this state, you know, Texas is going to look one way, New York's going to look another. The whole country will not have the same uh, regime, but I think that's, that's how our dem- democracy actually is supposed to work. So as for what the justices will do, none of us know. And I'll point out that one of the Roman Catholic justices in the court is Justice Sotomayor, who's probably one of the most radical members of the court. I think the big question here is, what are the originalist justices going to do? Because this is not about justices who happen to be personally pro-life, who say, here's my opportunity to achieve pro-life goals. No, it's about justices who recognize that the Constitution should be interpreted as it was originally understood and as it was written and passed by the American people and that they don't have, they they have to have the humility to say, we can't change that. That's something for the American people to change. And if you have that position, I think it's very clear that Roe and Casey are not founded in the Constitution and in the laws of this country and uh, that, that those decisions have to be made by the American people. Carrie, just just one quick follow up on that uh, case that's being heard today out of Texas. I, my understanding, they're going to be hearing about the part of the case uh, where uh, private citizens can report uh, people who have broken this law. And what what do you think? Where do you think they're going to come down on on that? I would. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I can't speculate, and I shouldn't. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I mean, none of us, none of us really has any business speculating right now. We'll have a little more input after the arguments because, uh, and, and now you can listen to those online. Even if you're not in D.C., you can't go to the court because of COVID anyway. So you can listen to them on C-SPAN and, you know, get your own, take your own temperature of the court, see what you think. Um, I, really, it's not even as much about allowing the, the private citizens to sue as what that means for when the government can sue. Because what we have here is the Department of Justice under the radical Attorney General Merrick Garland has decided to take into its own hands when the court already had rejected a private suit from abortion clinics about this law because they said this you're simply suing the wrong pe- people. You can't sue every possible um, citizen of Texas or of the country who might sue under this law. And so until someone really does bring a lawsuit, we can't hear this case. That's what the court said before. The Department of Justice 
said, hey, we're the, we're the U.S. government, so we can do this. And now the court's really deciding that. So I think there are a lot of people who, who don't maybe like the way that the Texas law is arranged. They say this is a weird way to uh, enforce a law. And it is. It, it's a weird way because of the legal system that, that, um, that has been enjoining um, abortion regulations from day one in most other cases. But uh, setting that aside, the, you know, kind of do I want individuals being able to sue under this, the big question is what can be done uh, to challenge it? And the, the problem is until there's actually a lawsuit, this is how it works in most areas of law, until there's actually a debate in a, in a, in a real um, two parties on the, on the, in the case, you can't, you can't uh, find out if the law is constitutional. You can't ask the court, just tell us ahead of time, is this a constitutional law? So if someone performs an abortion in Texas, and there's at least one person that's been claiming to have done so in the face of this law, and then if someone brings a lawsuit against this person under the law, at that point, the court has every right and, and ought to and must decide the constitutionality of the law. But before that, you don't, you don't get to just have a, a declaratory judgment, as it's called, um, just because you're the United States government, or at least that's the court. That's the question. The that's court what it's supposed. That's the standard, right? That's supposed to be the standard. Hey, uh, Carrie, I want to right. move to something else because this is actually very. This is a personal uh, passion for me, and that's uh, I, I, I'm just appalled by these vaccine mandates, and I'm appalled by the mm-hmm. way the court has handled them. And I just one happened yesterday. Uh, Maine uh, is refusing religious healthcare workers to have any exemption from the COVID mandate. Uh, they're, they're not allowed to do that. And the Supreme Court, at least a p- portion of them, have allowed Maine not to give religious exemptions. Uh, I'm concerned. I think the court, you know, we've had other cases where I think Amy Coney Barrett refused uh, Indiana, I think it was Indiana University or one, one of the universities there, uh, from allowing uh, students to have any kind of a religious exemption. What's what's going on with that? I Also, let me add one more thing, because then I'll, I'll let you talk about that. Um, some uh, Technofod has just written an article about uh, Kavanaugh may be the hope on this issue because of what's called the major rule. And uh, so, uh, all right, so t- tell us what's going on with that, if you can. Sure. Well, so, you know, Justice Barrett's um, performance here has been decidedly mixed. When she first came on the court, remember, there were a lot of COVID cases shutting down churches that the chief justice had just gone right along with. And when she came on the court, those turned on a dime. So she was very clear about the, the rights of religious institutions in those cases, and that was a great, a great progress for the court. The Indiana case you mentioned actually did have a religious exemption. So I think a lot of people were more worried about that than, um, than it merited. The main case, on the other hand, I found very concerning uh, because, again, this is, uh, you know, the vast majority, I think 47 of the states that have, have mandates that include a religious exemption. And there's an obvious reason they should, because we, have a, we are a country that has the First Amendment of the Constitution. Our first freedom we recognize is the freedom of religion. And if you're allowing exemptions, for other things like a medical exemption, um, you know, you you must. I, I would say you must, but I, I think the court. That's the, this, the question: is do you need to include a religious exemption as well? Um, because you're you're already saying we can we can allow as a as a public health matter some people not to get this vaccine. It's not the kind of thing where every single person has to have it. So can we allow relig- individuals with a religious exemption not to have that vaccine? I was I was concerned that the court didn't grant this injunction because I think obviously there's a the standards you look at is, is what's the harm on the other side. The harm is very serious. We know so many people who are losing their jobs across the country. And you sure. think of it a time when our healthcare workers, we have a shortage already. So why would you why would you have fewer healthcare workers? So the, the harm is serious. The likelihood of success, as Justice Gorsuch wrote in his um, his dissent in this case was is actually very high. And I think I would hope that Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh recognize it's high. I, I am concerned. Those would be the normal standards you'd look at. I'm concerned that they have put those standards aside because of the pressure. Again, we, we have so much pressure on the court right now, and we need to be praying for our justices that they have courage in the face of that pressure. Um, but there's pressure people of people saying, well, the court shouldn't be allowing emergency injunctions, and they're doing this too much. But, you know, that's really these people aren't actually concerned about the procedure. You can tell because the very same people who are saying, how could the court possibly, you know, have a have a emergency stay to allow people to keep their jobs in this case? It's the same people who won the court who were angry. The court didn't give an emergency uh, stay in the Texas case. 
So they, they don't really care about do you ha- are you giving emergency stays or not. They just are angry at the court for any decision they disagree with. And they're using that to kind of cast aspersions on cases that come up through this emergency docket. Unfortunately, some cases really are emergencies, and this was one. And so it's discouraging to see the court not willing to step up. It's not the last word in the case. The case is going to continue. But unfortunately, um, because of the Supreme Court's action, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and maybe their livelihoods in the process of the court of this case slowly working its way up through the court until it can be uh, completely adjudicated. You know, yes, and actually, life is at stake here. People are losing their lives from taking the vaccine. People are being injured, not all of them, but enough that they sh- the court should be listening to this. And uh, it's really it's really disgusting to me, Carrie, that they, um, I don't understand, you know, the kind of pressure. What do they get, mean tweets? Are, are they afraid that the court's going to be packed? What, are their homes being picketed? I realize Kevin, I went through well, yes. hell when he was confirmed. <laughs> but is any of that, that, that kind of thing happening? Uh, well, unfortunately, is any of that kind of thing the, happening? What what kind of pressure? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, there are, there literally has been picketing of Justice Kavanaugh's home recently, which which I was glad to see a lot of people, even on the left, stand up to because they said, "Look, it's one thing to picket the court, but you don't go to someone's home, especially someone with young children like Justice Kavanaugh. That's inherently very threatening." And so, I hope that won't happen again. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the big things they do see is this uh, court packing threat. They realize, like, frankly, most of the uh, of the members of Congress and most of the, the Democrat members, I think, also realize that packing the court would be horrible for the institution, that it would lead to a, a back and forth, one way ratchet, just adding justices every time a new party came into power. That'd be horrible for the court. And I think they see that and they're really worried. And I think they're worried um, about just the reputation of the court. And if you look at the mainstream uh, corporate media, uh, the message they're getting is, that anytime you have a conservative result, that's going to harm the reputation of the court. Um, it certainly harms the reputation of the court with the opinion page of the New York Times. No question. But is that really what the American people want to see in the court, a court that is uh, just simply bowing to the liberal establishment? Of course not. The American people want a court that it answers first and foremost to the Constitution. And we have to recognize that the constitutional values might actually, you know, there's different, different aspects of the Constitution that might chafe all of us at different points. But we have to be sticking with that. And if we want to change the Constitution, that's for the amendment process, not for five unelected men and women on the Supreme Court to just veto the um, the decisions of the American people in their in their founding document. Carrie, I want to quote, uh, I think it's your favorite justice, and it's certainly mine. That's Clarence Thomas. You, you clerked for him, mm-hmm. and I've known him for a long time, too. And this is a story that I just read. It says that after he took his seat on the U.S. Supreme Court 30 years ago this month, Justice Clarence Thomas assured his law, law, law clerks, I ain't evolving. And then the, the, the story, I think it was in the New York Times, goes to complain that no, indeed he hasn't evolved. And it's just been very frustrating that Justice Thomas has not evolved. And I just thought you'd enjoy that little quote. Um, there's one more case on Wednesday, and it's a gun case. Just Could you just give us a word? Because we have 30 seconds, and that's all. Yeah, this is another big case. Uh, this term, it, it maybe pales in comparison to the abortion cases, but it has to do with the right to bear arms in New York. In New York, unless you have a specific threat against you personally, you can't carry a gun outside your home. And uh, the court will have to look at that and decide, uh, does the Constitution require that you have to be able to not just keep, but bear arms? Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. Carrie Severino, uh, thanks so much. I appreciate your time every time you join us. So thank you, and we'll be watching. Will the court be in session all week, or will it be two weeks, or how long will they be considering be, all these things? Yeah, it's this week and then next week for the November cases. Then you get a couple weeks off, and then we come back December 1st with the Dobbs case, that big abortion case out of Mississippi. So okay. a lot coming okay. up. Very interesting. Thank you, Carrie Severino. Thank you so much. And it's Judicial Action Network. She's the president of. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Thank you.